Welcome to Success Stories, the podcast where outstanding women share their journey to leadership, the personal habits that have helped them succeed, and the projects they're passionate about. Join me, your host, Catherine Robson, as we redefine what success looks like. Something wonderful is happening in Melbourne. In arguably Australia's most traditional city, there's a flourishing of female leadership. The Governor of Victoria, the Melbourne Lord Mayor, the President of the Victorian Racing Club are all currently women. And the CEO of the Committee for Melbourne, Martine Letts, joins this illustrious group and supported by a strongly gender diverse board, is perhaps part of the momentum behind the change. Martine is an accomplished executive with extensive experience in government, not-for-profit and international policy sectors. She was a senior Australian diplomat for 17 years, was the deputy director of the Lowy Institute for International Policy, secretary general of the Australian Red Cross and chief executive officer of the Australia-China Business Council before taking the top job at the Committee for Melbourne. While Martine loves Australia as her home, it was her truly international upbringing and outlook which have allowed her to thrive. Martine, lovely to see you. You've got a really fascinating personal background. How do you feel that your personal family and upbringing have shaped some of the career choices you've made over time? Yes, Catherine, I think it's important to understand how your personal background really does shape your future. Uh, And uh, what I'm eternally grateful for is that the very mixed background that I had, including my parents coming from completely different worlds, uh, how positively that influenced my education and the choices I was able to make uh, in adult life. Because your dad came from My father's from the bush. He's from a very small town in in the Wimmera called Donald. Uh, But uh, parents who were very keen on all of him and his brothers getting a very good education. In those days also the Australian scholarship system was very strong so he was able to go to school in Melbourne and to university in Melbourne through the scholarship system. He was interested in modern languages so he studied French and German at Melbourne University. My mother uh, was a migrant um, of European background, came out to Australia in 1950 uh, to Western Australia and uh, funnily enough they met in Canberra which was a, a town that became very important also in in my background and my mother was very excited about meeting an Australian who was interested in in Europe Uh, and of course uh, my father was very excited about meeting somebody um, who came from that background so uh, it was a, a a mixed background which really influenced not only my interest in the outside world but also my passionate attachment to Australia as a country that had given so many opportunities to migrants as well as people from the bush. And it seems like that idea of service has been a theme that runs all the way through your career, but it sort of starts really with your parents and almost learning from their experience. Absolutely right. My my father was very interested in the notion of public service, and he was, for most of his life, a, a public servant. Also particularly interested in ensuring that the voices of Australians that weren't so often heard, particularly in the country, uh, were heard and represented uh, in in Canberra. 
and uh, my 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 mother uh, also had a very strong, highly developed sense of civic service, uh, also from her parents. Also taking advantage of the opportunities you have. They came from war-torn Europe. Both her parents lost pretty much everything in the war and that was one of the reasons why they came to Australia, as many migrants did at the time. And uh, it's something that really made an indelible impression on me uh, through, throughout my career choices. That's certainly the case. And so in terms of uh, academic study... Um, why did you choose what you did and did you have a vision in terms of where that would lead you? I was always interested um, because my father was also a diplomat, not a foreign affairs diplomat like I was. He was a trade diplomat. He started actually as a migration officer. So um, having spent much of my early years in Europe, uh, I was always interested in the external world and Australia's relationship with it. And uh, I uh, spent all of my primary schooling in a German language school, so that was a natural advantage, so that's why I pursued German language and literature studies. Uh, and, uh, and so, yes, that, that was uh, a background that I built on. Um, that was an advantage that I was given that I chose to build on and always interested in Australia's relationship with the rest of the world. We as a country to this day don't have a future uh, without active engagement with the external world and in particular, of course, now our own Asia-Pacific or Indo-Pacific region, uh, given our distance, given the nature of our economy and the kind of resources that we have, uh, without that kind of engagement, without a strong international rules-based system, which is very challenged right now, um, Australia's future looks pretty grim and that has been the leading thread, if you like, or the leading idea that has shaped my career over the years. And practically that manifested itself in many years in the Australian Foreign Service. What were the highlights of those years? Without a doubt, the highlights were the negotiation and conclusion of the Chemical Weapons Convention of the Treaty. And by, you know, really serendipity or happenstance, I was in the Australian delegation to the Conference on Disarmament at the time that those negotiations really um, accelerated, if you like. I mean, the, the negotiations have been going for something like 20 years. In fact, um, the, there, there already was a protocol in place since 1925 against the use of chemical and biological weapons, but this treaty was then developed to prevent uh, the manufacture, the production, and etc. So it was, a, it, was a, it was a big deal at the time, and I was in the right place at the right time. And I had some wonderful mentors in foreign affairs and trade who encouraged me to pursue that path. And a very active foreign minister at the time, Gareth Evans, uh, who was really adept at also making the most of the opportunities that Australia was given to pursue these kinds of treaties. So, you know, it was a mixture of happenstance, uh, of serendipity, but also of real activism um, in Australian foreign policy at the time in an environment where that activism was encouraged. Uh, I think the environment has somewhat changed, so context is everything, as one other former Prime Minister used to say, uh, but it was, it was a really wonderful experience and really made a difference to the international environment. Negotiating some of those treaties must take a lot of resilience and patience, and as you say, the, the environment has changed a lot. Interested in whether you came to those sort of difficult negotiations with an internal reservoir of that sort of patience and resilience or whether that was something that you needed to develop? 
Certainly needed to develop it. Uh, I was not a particularly patient individual as a young person. Uh, very, very quick to form judgments and to, you know, uh, as many young people, I get very passionate about issues and uh, on the barricades a lot of the time. So this particular negotiating process taught me to be far more patient. Uh, you know, it's important to be patient and to listen, but then also to know when to call something out when it's not right. So it's a balance between listening, between being skillful in making sure that all the voices around the table are heard, and then to say, well, really, uh, we need to move on now and, and take some decisions. So it's a quite a fine art that took some time to hone over years. And when you look at some of the international relations that we see reported in the media. Obviously, you're never quite sure what's going on in the room. But do you find it a little bit heartbreaking, having spent you know, 18, 17, 18 years as a diplomat yourself, that there doesn't seem to be the same spirit of collectivism and goodwill? Look, I think it depends, again, on the context. Um, we've got to remember that we do have an international rules-based system that is still referred to, so it's not as if it's been completely abandoned or trashed. The other thing to remember is that, from my experience, there are many behind the scenes, the discussions that are going on in international relationships that we don't hear about in the media because they're not exciting, that maintain the stability of certain relationships even if there seems to be on the surface a lot of turbulence going on. So even if you look today at what appears to be um, off-the-cuff comments from a President Trump, uh, we know, because we know how the international relationships system works, that there's a lot of background discussion going on. What you need to be worried about is when you start to hear that that dialogue behind the scenes is no longer happening. And I think uh, in the current context, I do worry currently that that dialogue, uh, for example, between the United States and China seems to be in a pretty fraught situation right now. When you see that starting to happen, that's when you need to start worrying. In terms of the personal impact on your life being on the global stage, you were Australia's ambassador to Argentina, Paraguay and Uruguay, lived all over the world. How do you manage that trade-off between having a sort of stable personal life with the desire to progress and, and needing to make sacrifices? So there is a lot involved in these roles which really eats into your personal life. And really, it's an individual choice about how you manage that. I would say that, for me, I did dedicate a lot to the job um, because I derived an enormous amount of personal satisfaction from it, but also because I knew that I could do one thing really well but not multiple things really well. Uh, but I don't see that as a sacrifice. That's a choice that I made in, in my career. The other thing that uh, it's important to remember is that some of us or some of my colleagues kind of got a little bit ahead of themselves in terms of their own sense of self-importance in those ambassadorial roles. At the end of the day, you've got to keep this all in very much in perspective. You are representing your country, but you're a public service servant in, in a country where you're representing your country, but you need to also understand that this is something that you're doing uh, as a public servant rather than somebody who has a particular status or role with that ambassador tag attached to it. So I was always very aware of the privilege attached to my role, but also that 
the reality of it was that when I got home to Australia, I was just another Australian public servant. So keeping that kind of balance of sense of perspective of what you were doing there. And also, really, the, the thing that was was so exciting about these roles was that you really got to represent the best that Australia had to offer, you know, be it in education or in agribusiness or in mining know-how or the film industry. So it was a very exciting and diverse role and you, you had to be plausible on everything, even if you had no expertise on a number of issues. And that served me very well, in particular in, in any of the roles that I've taken on since then, including at the Committee for Melbourne. Such a fascinating brief. And you've really got to master it and be plausible on it and not be frightened of the fact that you have you don't necessarily have expertise in certain fields. So I learned a lot, particularly from that time when I was ambassador in Argentina, that I was able to transfer to related roles. And it also seems that you're really attracted to big ideas and to really digging into complex problems. So then you spent, uh, after your time in the Foreign Affairs Department, um, eight years with the Lowy Institute mm, mm. Uh, and then went on to um, work with uh, the Red Cross and the Australia-China Business Council. Um, when you've made those pivotal choices, what are the, the decision-making uh, tools that you've used to help you decide when's the right time to move on to something next and what's the right opportunity to choose? So I think the, the Red Cross role is probably the best example of that. So that was my first role outside the public sector. And um, I have to admit, uh, I completely underestimated what that involved when I took on the role. It was a big jump for me, not only... That was getting, the Secretary-General, which is... That was Secretary-General, the, the, yeah, the CEO of, of the Australian Red Cross. And... I note, by the way, that my predecessor was Jim Carlton, the late Jim Carlton, wonderful man, uh, former Minister for Health, um, and my successor was Robert Tickner. So I was four years squeezed between two ministers, uh, which was an interesting development in itself. But I took on that role uh, because uh, I found it... Well, first of all, I respected the organisation immensely. It fitted very much into my notion of the importance of international humanitarian activity and services. But what I ended up doing was actually uh, really reforming the organisation because it was um, there was a, a national secretariat based in Melbourne and then there were eight state and territory divisions that were doing a lot of duplication and that, in my opinion, were really misusing, um, in some ways, uh, donor funds because there was so much duplication going on. I don't mean this in, a, in, in any kind of dishonest way, but it was there was a lot of waste. Uh, and my predecessor, Jim Carlton, had pointed that out to me. He'd reformed the blood service. I took on the rest of the humanitarian services. So using my negotiating skills and building relationships with the state and territory divisions was the big challenge. And I must admit, I underestimated that challenge initially, and it uh, took some time to build those relationships to build the changes. And at the end, we were successful in reforming the organisation and then I knew that it was time to leave after my four-year contract had expired because it would take a new person with the full powers of a CEO to come in to lead the organisation to its next stage of development. So um, having, you know, really um, managed uh, the, the initiation of that change... Uh, I could have stayed, but I thought, no, it's really time to go. So the lesson I learned was, you know, you really need to understand when it's time to leave an organisation, uh, particularly if you are a change maker or, or a change agent, uh, because um, 
it's the role of somebody else to consolidate the, those particular changes. Uh, and uh, there would always be people that would resent you for having done what you did that wouldn't want to collaborate or cooperate with you. So that was a really good example of you know, getting in there, uh, making a difference, and then knowing where to get out. Have there been times as you've navigated your way through your career, because it hasn't really been linear, there's been lots of different, there's been a thread that runs through, but it's, you know, it's not like a predetermined course that many of us follow. Um, have there been times that you feel like you've made missteps or that there's been um, you know, mistakes or challenges that you've really learned a lot from? Yes, well, I, I certainly learned a lot from my two-year experience with the Australia-China Business Council. So after the Red Cross, I went to the Lowy Institute and um, I was there for, I was deputy director there and it was there for, for about eight years. So the first thing I realised was that I was probably there for too long. Uh, that was, um, you know, be, being, being in a role like that for, for more than between five or eight years, you, you need to understand that once you've made some changes there. It's time. So I probably hung in there for too long and then um, took on the Australia-China Business Council because that was an opportunity that was presented to me, but I had very little China experience and what they were looking for was a similar activity to what I'd undertaken at the Red Cross, but I discovered very quickly that they were in no real mood to do that. Um, it was still very much a state-based organisation with, uh, with, with a board that was very much interested in representing um, the interests of the individuals on the board as well as their states that they represented and so I sort of soldiered on with that for a couple of years and it became apparent that this wasn't actually going to happen so you know there was lack of China experience but there was also a um, you know a, a board that really wasn't very very willing to change so um, that was um not a happy experience. Uh, although, that said, um, I always try to draw positives out of these experiences. I made an incredible range of contacts and, and was able to really experience the importance of the Australia-China relationship, which is one of our most important relationships, strategically speaking. Whichever way you look at it, it's absolutely fundamental to our future. So it was a really a privilege to be able to learn about that and to draw on that experience uh, for other roles. And I was very lucky. My last chairman, John Brumby was absolutely outstanding and uh, really was able to be very helpful to me in, in my new role of the committee for Melbourne. So you can always draw positives out of it. But if I had my time again, uh, I suspect I probably would have been a bit more cautious about taking on a role for which I was really quite underprepared and also uh, sold something that was really not, you know, which didn't come to pass. One of the things I think is interesting about your career is that you've been the leader of organisations um, right through um, your time, almost right from your very earliest stages as a diplomat. What are the things that you think make a really effective leader? The first thing you have to do is surround yourself with really good people uh, and not be threatened by people who are excellent because if you have a really good team with really good people, uh, you you can't... Well, your chances of success are much magnified. I mean, everyone can fail on just about anything, but your chances of success are, are really much higher if you have really good people around you. You've got to um, be a really good listener uh, and you've got to be able to take decisions and not prevaricate for too long or be too cautious. 
It's a very fine balance between taking time to consider the issues and then really being decisive about things. So those are the things that I've learned. It's really, I've also learned that it's really tough to be tough on people. Uh, you know, you have to sometimes call an issue out. And I've got a natural inclination to try and resolve things through dialogue, uh, which has mostly worked for me. But there are times when that doesn't work, when you simply have to say, no, you know, enough is enough or decision or maybe this is not the right role for you anymore. And so really your people are your greatest asset, but your people are your greatest challenge too. And I think anyone that's been in that kind of position, whether in a leadership position or in any position of management, will agree. Anything that you've used as a resource or learnt from over time that's helped you be a good people leader? I've certainly uh, found it very useful to ask for help from time to time from people. You know, Some people have mentors, um, and I had a couple of mentors in my professional life, probably not as many as I should have. I would encourage people to really seriously look at having a number of mentors who have expertise in different fields. And that's something that I personally haven't made enough use of, so that would be something that I, I would do if I had my time again. And, uh, you know, there is still time to do that, but, but I, I, I think that the use of mentors is, or mentors is, a very, is a very good a good discipline to have and very useful. I think it has been really to do with listening to people and acknowledging people's strengths and helping them develop those strengths and that's been really, for me, the most successful thing. And the other thing is asking for help. So um, particularly in small organisations which don't have HR departments, going externally and saying and, and organising external assistance in helping resolve internal problems that you can't resolve internally, I think is really, really important. Getting a neutral arbiter to come in to help out when a situation becomes fraught in a way that you can't resolve it internally. So don't think you can resolve everything yourself. Get people who've got the professional expertise to come in and assist you. Very important. And that's helped me a lot. The Committee for Melbourne is a wonderful organisation. It seems to have had um, a number of wonderful female leaders, which is um, interesting in terms of its cultural heritage. Um, in terms of the work that you're most proud of that the Committee for Melbourne is responsible for, what are the things that, that you would point to? Yes, you're right about the Committee for Melbourne being mostly led by women. In fact, there's only, well, there have been a couple of male leaders and four female leaders, one of whom is now the Lord Mayor of Melbourne, Sally Cap. And our founder, Pamela Warren, I need to mention her, she celebrated her, I think, 94th birthday yesterday. Uh, she, she actually created the Committee for Melbourne at a time when women didn't play that kind of role at all, uh, with a male board, I should say. And so it's got a wonderful legacy of female leaders, which, which I want to acknowledge, uh, which it's been really, really excellent. And Janine Kirk, another female leader, has also just gone on to do wonderful things in Melbourne, fantastic people. Uh, and it's a legacy that the Committee for Melbourne can really be proud of. Now at the Committee for Melbourne, what I'm proud of is that the committee has always been a very strategically focused organisation, forward-looking, so apolitical, not driven by the political cycle, very much driven by the idea that the public and private sectors need to collaborate to make sure that this city's prosperity and livability can continue to be promoted. So um, what I'm proud of is that I've actually collaborated with a couple of my colleagues here to set 
a forward-looking agenda for the committee, in particular looking at the big, big major trends that are shaping our future, uh, the fourth industrial revolution and um, the uh, continuing change of the geostrategic power base from the West to the Asia-Pacific region. And having put that on the agenda and having drawn our members in to participate in developing ideas for how we tackle that, be it future skills uh, or um, looking at the importance of developing a more cohesive eastern seaboard mega-region to compete with the mega-regions of the world, uh, looking at uh, things like infrastructure, transport, you know, modernising Melbourne, making sure that it can manage its growth well and in a forward-looking and strategic way, that's what I'm, I'm proud of. We really put that agenda right up there. We were the first organisation, I would say, um, leaving aside the kind of commentary that you see in the press, but we were the first organisation to put the fourth industrial revolution and its challenges firmly on the Melbourne public discussion agenda. So that idea that you know Melbourne is an innovation hub is so attractive, and when when you look at that Parkville precinct where there's just been this incredible collaboration between multiple institutions, it would be fabulous to see Melbourne do that um, in a, in a broader innovation sense. Um, one of the things I think that you're on record as saying is that that's not just about you know building technology it's also about building people resource and that the human side of innovation is just as important um so that's that's absolutely right and it's even more relevant today than it ever was before uh, because even with the new technologies um the, the the spark the ideas happen through collaboration and that's why we're seeing the phenomenon of more and more people flocking to a central part of a city because even if they can communicate remotely, they still need to talk to one another and they still need to collaborate. So the very fundamental ethos of the Committee for Melbourne is collaboration, is bringing in people from different organisations and disciplines to tackle a problem in a way that they can't do within their organisations alone. So that's always been the basis of the Committee for Melbourne's success. And that's utterly transferable to the development of, of new technologies and of the new economy, more, more than ever before. The, I think it's fair to say that we are still not that great at collaborating. We talk the talk, but we don't really yet quite walk the walk. For example, uh, we've got you know eight world-leading universities in Melbourne, all of which are members of the committee, that still don't really collaborate with one another on some of the big things that would make Melbourne a global leader or where Melbourne has a potential to be a global leader. It's starting, but it's still you know, very much in its infancy. We have a lot of universities now that are bringing industry into the process of research, but it's still you still get the impression that it's a bit of a bolt-on or a little bit of an afterthought. It's absolutely critical for our future competitiveness and for the success in whether it be health or biomedical research or the things that we really are world leading at to 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 ha to, to facilitate the better connection between um, industry or investors and what our researchers are producing now that goes to the heart for example of our entire uh, university funding system where uh, researchers are still chasing research grants and putting a lot of their energy into research grants, uh, which are government research grants, rather than connecting with industry. So there are some very fundamental changes which 
to be fair, have been recognised, but we're still very much at the early stages of developing and where other countries have really got the march on us at the moment. Melbourne has the potential to be a global leader, particularly in health research. And it's not just biomedical, it's the whole spectrum of health, starting from you know, preventive care through to the management of health systems and aged care systems. But without that more developed collaboration between universities and between universities and, 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 and the commercial sector uh, at, and attracting more investment, um, we're going to be left behind. You've also been on record talking about, you know, the, the fact that the study of humanities is actually really essential, even in a technological age. You're a big reader. Um, what are some of the books that have been really pivotal in your life and that you recommend to others? Well, the, the one that I just read recently, which was an eye-opener and I tried not to be too frightened, was um, Homo Deus, um, which it looks at the impact of AI on, on, on society and on our, on our very humanity. And um, it was interesting, actually, because um, even people like Henry Kissinger ha have now ha have sort of suddenly had an aha moment um, about how this this technology has the impact to completely change the way we relate to one another, and not only international relationships, but um, sort of within, within relations. So, so that that's something that I think we need to be highly aware of the challenge and how we manage it. And this is not just a question for. Our parliamentarians. It's a question for our entire community and society. So very important to understand how we manage that and how we regulate it so that we can use it to our advantage without uh, completely um, succumbing to a force that could be quite overwhelming and, and that could uh, have very negative impacts on our community. And this is a worldwide phenomenon. But the other, the other, the other books that have, I've always... And so so that, there's a theme there in terms of what I've always found interesting is to understand, to read great literature about society and transition. And um, I've actually... I just went to Sicily on my annual leave, so I've been rereading The Leopard um, by uh, Lampedusa, which was a, a pivotal novel. In, well, it's, it's one of the great novels of, of, of Italian literature, which discusses the, the business about how you deal with change. And if you want stability, you actually need to manage change. And if you want things to stay the way they are, they have to, they have to change. Uh, and now, there's always going to be winners and losers in this game, and uh, that, that's a wonderful novel that, that traces that. But it's, a, it's, a, it's been a constant theme in, in my interest in reading and looking at also in German literature uh, and uh, one, of the main, one of the novels that I studied intensely when I was studying German was Berlin Alexanderplatz, which, was a, which traced the history of, of the, the growth of the metropolis uh, in, 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 the, uh, in, in human affairs. And, we, and that's been a theme that since the beginning of the 20th century, if anything has become stronger and stronger, is that increasingly our wealth and our affairs are dictated by what's happening in cities. Uh, we have now got 60% of the world's humanity living in cities. That's likely to grow even more in the next 20 years. And uh, that, has, that has been quite fundamental in changing the, the terms of our coexistence and how we manage our human relationships and our economies. So that's been a constant theme in the kind of literature that I've looked at over the years. In terms of yourself and your own personal disciplines to help you um, achieve all that you do, particularly, as you say, because as a leader, you so often have to be across so many different diverse subjects. How do you, what are the personal habits that help you stay mentally and physically strong? So I think you need to have a couple of 
habits or hobbies that are completely different to your day-to-day activity. And one of them is exercise. Um, not, you know, not always consistent, but, uh, but I, I have found that to be absolutely vital. But the other... What sort of exercise do you do? Well, I just... It's, it's more... Building it into your day. Gymnastics and, yeah. and, and walking and just physical, physical activity that takes you away from your desk and preferably into the fresh air. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, living in a city like Melbourne, it's wonderful. I mean, you, 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 there are opportunities. There are wonderful parks. And, and really, for pedestrians, it's a pretty good place uh, to, to be in. And, um, and uh, you know, I really bless the Victorians for their vision in terms of the creation of the parks and that, that, that they created for Melbourne. But, but physical exercise is important, but importantly also you've got to nurture your spirit and the creative side. And I've found there that uh, over the years uh, singing in choirs has been particularly beneficial. So I'm, I've been a chorister since I was about eight uh, and over the years have I've drawn you know, great uh, inspiration and uh, really uh, it's a different... you know In a choir you have to be part of a group and you have to blend and create a beautiful sound where you can't stand out. It's all about being a team player and uh, contributing to a beautiful sound. Uh, and uh, But also uh, watching what the conductor is, wants you to do. So being a, a collaborator and a follower rather than a leader. So it's incredibly relaxing. It's also um, great for the breathing, um, but it's also just such a beautiful, creative thing to do. So uh, you really have to have a couple of hobbies like that, which are quite different to the role. And it also enriches and enhances your ability to perform in the workplace. I firmly believe that. And final question, when you look forward to the future, what are the things that you're really positive and optimistic about? Look, I'm very optimistic about the potential of technology to contribute to some of the big global challenges, climate, the whole climate uh, phenomenon, if you want to say that, or, or, or global warming phenomenon, uh, is, is a challenge that looks almost currently to be very difficult and overwhelming. But I, I think that uh, we have some extraordinary technologies there that, uh, that we can pursue that can address that. But also um, just ways in which we can improve the lives of the enormous number of people who are still living in poverty and in deprivation through just the ability to communicate better, to understand where they get the resources from to improve their, their, the quality of their lives. Uh, I, uh, I do feel quite positive about that, about the potential technology to contribute, and also about the um, incredible richness that we've derived from just being better connected to one another globally. The, you know, globalism has um, its, de- its detractors, and um, I can understand why people feel anxious about uh, the fact that globalism does seem to have increased the haves and the have-nots. But overall, if you look at the situation that we face as a world today compared to previous centuries, we are in much better shape than we were before, and that's in large part to thanks to the fact that we have been able to apply technologies to the improvements of our living standards and that we have a better understanding of how one another thinks. So I, I feel quite optimistic about that, uh, and I would counsel very much against excessive nativism and uh, really pulling up the barriers. I think that's one of the greatest threats that we have, is that we do pull up the barriers. But I have, I, when I look at young people and the way they are naturally collaborative and naturally connected, 
does give me a great sense of optimism. Well, thank you so much, not only for your time today, but as for myself, a proud Melbourneian, for all the work you're doing to make sure Melbourne stays one of the world's great cities. Thanks, Catherine. It's been terrific talking to you. Every week I find a nugget of gold in each discussion, something I want to take away and implement in my own life. If you feel the same, I'd love to know how my guests touch your lives. You can leave a review on iTunes or get in touch on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks to the awesome Buffy Gorilla for production, Alicia Piper for her fantastic writing, and to Broke Free, who wrote and performed our theme music. See you next week.